good evening to you. By the way, did I say how good it is to see your faces once again? I know I did, but I'm really happy, so I had to do it again. Let's turn in our Bibles tonight to Matthew chapter 26 and studying our way and making our way through the Scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, and, and uh, you know, a little jumping into the Gospels and so forth. But we find ourselves now in Matthew chapter 26. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. Just flag them and they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to where we're studying tonight. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, this evening. As we come now to chapter 26 and separated some three weeks away or a month from our last time being together in the gospel according to Matthew, we remember that Jesus has just concluded his, what is known as his Olivet Discourse. I believe it is his second longest sermon that he taught in his public ministry, at least that is what's recorded for us in the scriptures after the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, teaching the disciples and teaching us about the age to come and what will be the characteristics of the world at the end of the age. And so we pick things now up in chapter 26. He's in the area of uh, the Mount of Olives in the vicinity of uh, of, uh, Jerusalem. And now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples... You know that after two days, so it's just a couple days now between uh, the time he's going to end up uh, crucified, you know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man, it's an interesting phrase that he uses to describe himself, it's one of the dominant phrases that is used concerning the Messiah in the Old Testament, he's declaring himself to be the Messiah. You know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. This was prophesied all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the Law and the Prophets, that a Messiah, a Savior, would come into the world. And part of the description of his uh, uh, life and his ministry is that he would ultimately die. Uh, Isaiah 53 speaks to it, uh, you know, most in terms of just sheer amount of of, uh, uh, information and insight into the cross, but it's there many places in in the Old Testament and how he would come into the world and then the description, Psalm 22, of his death, speaking of death by crucifixion. And it's interesting that... Uh, Here is Jesus born into human history. Here is the Messiah at the time in which crucifixion was the means of capital punishment. So he speaks of the fact that he's going to be delivered up to be crucified. Now, one of the things that's very interesting about uh, verse 2 is that it's one of the very few times. In fact, I can't really think off the top of my head of another time in the gospel where his crucifixion is spoken of without speaking also of his resurrection. Virtually always when it speaks, the Bible speaks to his crucifixion, it always then includes the resurrection because it is his death upon the cross, his burial, and his victory over death, his resurrection from the dead that provides us with good news, a Uh, a victory and a salvation that defeats all of the enemies that we have because of the fall. But there is no mention of the resurrection here. 
And doubtless the reason that it's not mentioned here is that the purpose is to focus completely upon the crucifixion as a fulfillment of the Passover. The Passover is mentioned, and Jesus' death upon the cross was the fulfillment and is the fulfillment of the Passover feast, where uh, he, he died, as, as John the Baptist said concerning him, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Passover feast in the Old Testament was this angel was going to come as a tenth plague related to uh, Egypt unless the blood of the lamb, prescribed lamb, was applied to the doorpost and the lentil of the house and the sign of a cross, then the firstborn within that family would uh, die. But where that blood was applied, a symbol, symbolic of the blood of Jesus Christ, then the judgment would pass over that house. And so uh, the, uh, the, that was what the Passover was. Jesus was, is now uh, fulfilling that feast in his crucifixion. Notice then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people, they assembled. These are the religious leaders of the Jews. They assembled at the palace of the high priest who is called Caiaphas. And what did they assemble to do? They assembled, I mean, almost incredibly, uh, to plot to take Jesus by trickery and to kill him. They know that they can't take him and, and, uh, and endeavor to have him crucified in some way involving the Romans, which was their intent, on the basis of anything uh, blasphemous or sinful about his life or his teaching. It had to be by trickery. And so there are all of these religious minds coming together for that very purpose. It really is a very, very ugly scene. It is um, something that I look at, and the capacity of religious men, I'm not talking about Christian men and women, but we have to be careful of it as Christians, the capacity of religious people to be guilty of the most heinous things in history. And here are religious leaders who are, are endeavoring now to take Jesus by trickery and to kill him. But they said, not during the feast, that is the feast of Passover, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now that is very, very fascinating, I think, um, to notice. Here they are. They want him crucified. They want him dead. But the one thing that they are trying to work out is that he will end up dead, but they do not want him to die on the day of the Passover. That's the only thing they're aiming for. And yet Jesus himself will absolutely die on the day of the Passover, the very thing they didn't want to have happen. But they didn't want it to happen because it would create an uproar among the people. Jesus knew it was going to occur because it was going to be the fulfillment of the Jewish feast of Passover. And what it speaks to us, and, and this is a theme that runs all the way through this section of Scripture, it speaks to us of the fact that God is in control. He was in control of this situation. They weren't. If they had been in control of the situation, Jesus would would have never been crucified on the Passover, and yet he ends up crucified on the, uh, on the day of the Passover, just as uh, God had determined and just as he had prophesied. God is in control of human history. He is in control of our lives. It doesn't mean that 
nations and individuals aren't responsible for the decisions that they make. I like to put it this way, that God rules over all and he overrules all for his purposes. And at least in my mind, it gives room for people to do the goofy things that we do and, and horrible things even that people do in, um, as a result of the fall and being fallen uh, people without then saying that God is then responsible for that. And so, but God is in charge. He is in charge of the scene, and we see the tone being set uh, at the very beginning. And then in contrast now to these religious leaders, God help me, you know, not to become a religious leader like this. That is the capacity, just awful, secret things that can happen in these kind of meetings. And thankfully, this wasn't the heart of everyone toward uh, the Lord Jesus. And so it moves on now in contrast to all of this, that when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon uh, the leper. And so Jesus, it's interesting uh, to realize that Jesus, when in the final uh, days of his life, in the final week of his life before the cross, he never spent a night in Jerusalem, not once. Jerusalem was not a Jerusalem was a very hostile place to him at this point. He spent each night in the city of Bethany, just two miles to the east of Jerusalem, where he had friends. I mean, that really speaks to us of the value of friendship, um, the importance of friendship in our lives. Even with Jesus in his uh, humanity, here's the hardest week of his uh, life, the hardest week in human history in many, many ways for any individual, you know, human being, though I know he's the God-man, and yet he goes to Bethany to spend the night there each night because he has uh, friends there. And as he's at this place, he goes uh, to Simon's house. We don't know who Simon is. Some people think he's maybe the father of uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. When Jesus went to Bethany, very often he, he would stay in the home of the two sisters and the brother, uh, Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Uh, for some reason, on this particular evening there at Simon the leper's house, he was probably a former leper that had been healed by Jesus. So they're in his house. Maybe he's got a bigger house, and they're there for the meal and so forth, but for whatever reason. And, and probably they had enjoyed a meal, and now after the meal, a woman, John's gospel tells us that it was uh, Mary, the uh, sister of Martha, she, she came to him having an alabaster flax, flask of very costly fragrant oil. The, the value, uh, the Holy Spirit tells us here and Matthew tells us here that it was very costly. The value of this flask of fragrant uh, uh, oil, we are uh, told uh, from people who study these things and uh, recognize it, the, was the price it was the wage of a working man, a blue-collar worker, uh, for an entire year. So if you're a blue-collar worker in the room tonight, you know what that is. But all of us know we're talking about something that is valued in the tens of thousands of dollars. And she takes this flask and she uh, opens it uh, up, very costly fragrant oil, and then she put a dab behind his right ear and his left ear. No, that's not what she did. She poured all of it on his head as he sat at the table, and she anoints him. 
And this in that culture was a, a major refreshment. And it wasn't lost upon Jesus or the people, the disciples who were watching it, how expensive this act of worship on the part of Mary was toward Jesus. She poured it out on his head as he sat at the table. And you would have thought that everyone in the room, certainly any other Christian in the room, would have thought, oh, man, man, my worship of God looks like peanuts in compared to how she loves him and, all, and, and a desire to love him more and worship him more. But that's not what they did. That's not how they responded to either Jesus or to Mary's act of worship here. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant over what they saw. And their complaint was, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for tens of thousands of dollars, and then we could have given the money to the poor. We know from the other Gospels that Judas was behind this. He's the one that carried the money among the 12 disciples, and all he could see was, wow, that was money that I would have had in my bag to be able uh, to pilfer, do something with, and now it's all gone. He begins to kind of complain in this way, and they all pick up, uh, you know, this complaint. Now, when I look at Mary on this scene, and Mary's very, very special. Each time we see her in the Scriptures, she ends up at Jesus' feet worshiping Him in some way, a beautiful portrait. And when I look at her and, and view her in this scene, uh, she just seems like she's lost in her own world. I mean, this is, this is her, this is Jesus, and, and she's going to pour this that would maybe be saved for her uh, wedding or for her old age to be sold to support her and so forth, and she just lavishes this uh, on Jesus. And then in the midst of this thing, here she is in this beautiful act between her and Jesus, and then suddenly, not pagans, uh, not Zeus worshipers, but other Christians, even the apostles, they're the ones that begin to complain about how extravagant and how wasteful this worship of hers, of the Lord, uh, was. And so, uh, they make that complaint. Jesus becomes aware of it, and he defends her. She doesn't defend her, herself. He doesn't wait for it to go long on, enough for her to do that, even if she would. He became aware of it, and he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? I bet that, I think things got quiet uh, after dinner with that. Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. In other words, what she's done here was an act of worship toward the Lord. She wanted to do something good to Him, some way to bless Him. And in this entire scene, as the cross is approaching, this act of worship toward Him just stands out because as you look at this whole thing, Jesus has told them already here in verse 2 that in two days I'm going to be crucified and so forth. And these guys are worried about people being too extravagant in their worship of the Lord and we could have sold that and then, you know, given the money to the poor and so forth. The disciples, the apostles didn't even get it. It wasn't even registering for them. And yet one person in that house got it. One person took seriously what he was saying, understood the implications that were coming his way, 
and decided, I have an opportunity right now to worship Him in a way that I may never otherwise have again. And she used the opportunity to then worship Him. And it blessed Him. Do you realize that when Jesus ultimately had those nails driven through His hands and through His feet hanging upon that cross, the fragrance of this oil was still on Him. He still bore that fragrance, that expression of her love. And so this beautiful, beautiful scene, when you're facing something very hard in your life, you know, tonight, or you see something that is coming on the horizon, I mean, you know and I know how hard it is to find someone who understands, even to find someone who cares enough to even try to understand what it is that we're facing or what it is that we're heading into. And here Jesus sees in this whole household full of people that love him in their own way, there's only one person who really gets it and really understands what he's facing, the pressure he's facing, the, uh, the, uh, the weight of what it is that he's facing, and she anoints him and worships him in order to bless him. Jesus said then in defending her further, for you have the poor with you always. That tells us that communism will never dominate the world. There will never be the eradication of poor in the world. And when Jesus says, not until the millennial reign of Christ, and when Jesus says you have the poor with you always, he's saying essentially you have an opportunity to do good for the poor as often as you want, all the way till the end of the age. There'll always be an opportunity to do good to the poor, which is what they were complaining about. But he's saying, in essence, that the opportunity to worship me before the cross, that's a very, very finite window, a very finite opportunity that will once very soon be lost. And she took a, a, a took uh, the opportunity to worship him in that way. I feel the same way about our worship of the Lord uh, even today. Do you realize for us as Christians that one day when we are in heaven, it will not be the extraordinary thing to worship God. It is all that heaven will be about. There won't even be a choice. It isn't that we're going to do it against our will, but that will be the entire environment of heaven. It will be effortless to worship Him. It will cost us nothing to worship Him. But now it does. And think about Jesus and His place in the world today. Think about how many Christians are in the world. Think about how many people are anti-God in the world by comparison, anti-Christ, anti-Christian, anti-Jesus in the world, in your own life. This is still a massive scene of rejection against Jesus by and large in this world. And I'm convinced the world would crucify him again in three and a half years if he came and did the same things and said the same things because People are just the same as they've ever been. And because of it, it means that the worship that we extend to Him in our singing, 
and in our voice as we've just done, or in our giving, or in our serving, that opportunity is a very finite opportunity to be able to worship Him in a current environment of rejection. That will be gone one day, wonderfully gone in one sense, but an opportunity is going to be lost as well. Our worship of Him is something that blesses Him. And, uh, and, and Jesus said, you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have uh, always to worship in this way. For in pouring this fragrant oil uh, on my body, uh, she did it for my burial. Again, she gets it. She understands what it is that I'm saying. And verily, verily, I say to you, Wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And here we sit at the end of September in 2016, and we are fulfilling this very verse, looking at what it is that she has done, and uh, uh, this as a memorial uh, to her. Now, an important lesson that comes out of this whole anointing of Jesus by Mary, this expression of our worship. Sometimes worshiping the Lord in a sacrificial way um, causes people to look at how we are spending our lives as Christians and declaring that that kind of dedication to Him, that kind of worship of Him is a sure way to waste your life. And it would be bad enough if this was the attitude among the world, those that don't know the Lord or aren't Christians. But so often, as is in the case in this scene here, that vibe or that attitude or even the verbalizing of it as it was here can come very often from other Christians, from the body of Christ. And people look at our worship of the Lord. You go to church every Sunday You go to church on Sunday morning and on Sunday night? I mean, what could be the attraction? I mean, there's a thousand channels on the television. The attraction is God. And and, and so often this is lost even upon Christians. And the scorning of the sacrifice. And I personally think in the light of Jesus' letter to the church of Laodicea, in the book of Revelation, that professing Christianity, a significant portion of it, is going to be marked by lukewarmness. Laodicea means the people rule, and it, and, it, and it was marked by lukewarmness as Jesus rebuked them. You and I, and I wanted to test my heart tonight, and I wanted to test your heart tonight. Has there ever been a time in your Christian life when you loved Him more and you worshiped Him more than you do now, where you were sold out to Him more than you are now, that your worship was expressed at a sacrifice that you or I may not have known now for years. And if that's the case, we're getting sucked into something that is very, very dangerous, not just in the world, but in the body of Christ. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of all worship that we can extend uh, to Him. And very often, as I said, we must fight the tone within professing Christianity in order to stay like Mary in the midst of what it is that's going on all around us. No worship directed toward the Lord Jesus 
is a waste. There isn't anything that he doesn't deserve. I think, too, that we need to be very, very careful of the subtle idea and we're close to a line. I don't know that we've crossed the line, but I don't like what I'm hearing now and then. In fact, more than now and then, I'm hearing it regularly, not in, you know, smaller churches like ours and so forth, but in national ministries, ministries that kind of have, you know, the pizzazz and on TV and best-selling books and so forth, you know, directed at Christians. This subtle idea that as Christians… We ought to be a little more less about God and uh, church and His body and the kingdom of God than about uh, people and about uh, taking care of people and, and doing good to the poor. Of course, it's very, very important to do good works. The most two greatest commandments are to love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. It's important that we love our neighbor as ourself. It's so vitally important. It's the encapsulation of the law and the prophets, but that can never get turned upside down. My love for people, my service to people must always come out of my love for God because if that ever gets turned upside down, then it becomes a social welfare thing. The church becomes that. It becomes a social gospel, and ultimately, God is lost. So today, there's a great emphasis upon the fact for us as Christians that we are to do good and to be good in the world, and we do need to do good and be good in the world. But that is not more important than our worship of God and our relationship with God and, and our expressing of our love to Him. And I think in some ways this um, a concern that I have is the, the moving away from a deep understanding of the Word of God. And if I'm not deep in the Scriptures or I don't know the Bible very well, then it isn't long that I'm going to go out and do a bunch of good works and feed the poor, and we ought to do that out of uh, our relationship with the Lord. I'm not putting that down, but it isn't long before that's the, the, the thing that's pulling the cart, and we need to be careful of that. And sometimes I just look at that this a little bit, and I see people who love God in this way, are committed to the body of Christ in this way, sacrificial in their giving, sacrificial in their service, sacrificial in assembling together with the saints, and they're looked at as someone who cares only about God, and they don't care enough about the world. And, uh, and I think that's a line that if that crosses, that attitude of, you know, we, this was indignant concerning that this is a waste, then it, it, that path has been trod a million times in, in Christian history. It always leads nowhere. First foremost commandment, love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. And the second is like unto it, love our neighbor as ourself. But those things cannot get flipped. Again, I want to return to it. I want to return to it. Do you and I, in the privacy of our heart, I'm not here to beat anybody up or make somebody feel unnecessarily, but am I lukewarm tonight? Am I lukewarm tonight? Am I just going along with the flow? 
I think about Leonard Ravenhill's great statement that he made when he said, where is the prophet who will move the prophets? And that's the kind of Christian that we need to be, a great Christian for the glory of God and a great worshiper of God, even among Christians. Don't settle down into some low common denominator in this regard, certainly not at the end of the age. Now then, in contrast to this expression of of worship on the part of uh, Mary toward Jesus, again another contrast, here we have the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. And then one of the twelve, and the Holy Spirit describes Judas as one of the twelve, and it's not by accident, it's a very damning term. So here is Judas, he's about to betray Jesus, described as one of the twelve. In other words, Judas has been, Judas has had a privilege in his life that only 12 people had in all of human history. Every miracle that Jesus did, he saw with his own eyes. Every single teaching that Jesus taught, he heard with his own ears. He heard it all, he saw it all, he had an access to Jesus that only 11 other people in human history had. It talks about his privilege, and it speaks to the fact that this betrayal is an awful betrayal. It is a terrible betrayal against privilege and against light. And so then one of the twelve, that is of the apostles, called Judas Iscariot, he went to the chief priests and he said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him, that is Jesus, to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver, and so from that time he sought opportunity to betray Jesus." betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. In the Old Testament, we know that was the price that was to be paid. If you owned a slave, and that slave was gored to death by the ox of a neighbor, you had to reimburse uh, the owner of the slave 30 pieces of silver uh, for the death of that servant or that slave. And that's the value that Judas Iscariot put upon uh, Jesus, the one that he had been with these three and a half years, the price of a gourd slave from the Old Testament. It's interesting when I look at Judas here and I look at his life and I try to learn from here, it certainly speaks to us probably the most powerful voice or life in all of the Bible to warn us. It's not the only one, but the most powerful one to warn us concerning this sin of covetousness. And covetousness is the ungodly desire for more. When the desire for money, the desire for material things becomes more important to me than my relationship with God, and I am willing to sell him out uh, for some sum of uh, money. That is covetousness. The interesting thing is, is that we live in a culture that thrives off. The whole co- economy is dependent on covetousness. It's dependent upon materialism. It's dependent upon commercial by commercial and fad by fad to make me dissatisfied with something 
that I already own in my life and is good enough for that purpose to then want me to then have this something else. And again, because we live in such an atmosphere of materialism in the United States of America and in such an atmosphere of covetousness, we can be kind of oblivious to it. I, I judge myself or uh, covetous in my life, covetousness, on the basis of um, how dominant it is in somebody else's life or in the culture's life, and I'm doing a little bit better than them, and so I'm free from the sin of covetousness. But that's not the standard. It is a willingness to sell Jesus Christ out for money and material gain. And that can be when I'm willing to compromise the Word of God, compromise my relationship with Him, in order to get some kind of money or a promotion or to cut a deal in business or whatever it might be, and I'm willing to take that relationship with him and I'm willing to sacrifice it over here because it will mean more money to do that. And covetousness is a very, very uh, dangerous sin. And it's important for us to think about that related to our life tonight. Has money the making of money, the accumulation of material things, aiming for material things, and the amassing of that, is that more important to me tonight as a Christian than my relationship with God? What dominates uh, in terms of my prayer life, in terms of my devotional life, in terms of my Christian service, in terms of my financial giving to the Lord for the body of Christ, in terms of whatever it might be, where these things have begin to become lax or disobedient in these areas because of covetousness. I want more of these things, and I'm willing to disobey God's commandments in order to make more money, and I find myself continually choosing, when push comes to shove, choosing money over God. And it's important for us. It's dangerous for me so I assume it's dangerous for you. It's important for us, each and every one of us. It's a very searching section of Scripture that we're in tonight, all the way through. A lot to search us. The only way I can be free of covetousness and the danger of following in Judas' footsteps in some respects is to be a Christian who does not have a price, where there is nothing the world or the flesh or the devil can offer me to move me away from my obedience and my faithfulness to God, and that in by the grace of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's important there is nothing somebody could offer me in terms of money, in terms of a relationship, in terms of an experience, in terms of a position that I would say I will jettison or compromise my relationship with God in order to gain that thing. And what it means for us as Christians, and again, this is supposed to be normal biblical Christianity, it means that we cannot have a price. We cannot have a price in our life. Nothing that could be offered to us that we know. If somebody gave me that, I would let go of God and I would go after that for the next six weeks, six months, six years, or whatever it might be. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and he said, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you and whom you have received from God? You are not your own, but you were bought at a price. 
And Peter speaks of the fact that the price that was paid for us to be bought and to belong exclusively to God was the blood of Jesus Christ. The importance of looking at our lives tonight, am I deliberately, consciously tonight, not in this room now at this moment, but in my life as I look at it the past week or in the recent months now, I'm compromising my relationship with him because I can make money and, and it's beneficial for me materially to do that and to repent of that. Every single sin that's described in the Bible is so dangerous because we think we can control it and we think we have it under control. But every sin that works within our life and we give it an opportunity, it is working toward our death, the death of our relationship with God and ultimately our physical death. It takes over, and it takes over in a moment where we don't realize that we've lost control of this sin now. And thus we need something from the Word of God to wake us up out of that place and to check and to search ourselves. Would I sell the Lord out for anything? Judas did it for 30 pieces of silver. So somebody does it for a million dollars. What's the difference in terms of eternity? Not only would I sell him out for something, but am I selling him out for something even tonight? There's the old ode, it may not be for silver, it may not be for gold, but still by tens of thousands is the precious Savior sold, sold for a godless friendship, sold for a selfish aim, sold for a fleeting trifle, sold for an empty name, sold in the mart of science, sold in the seat of power, sold at the shrine of fortune, sold in pleasure's bower, sold where the awful bargain none but God's eye can see, Ponder, my soul, the question, shall he be sold by thee? And Judas makes us think about that related to our lives. Do you realize that when Judas ultimately goes back and, and to these priests and declares Jesus' innocence and he throws the money back down at their feet, that he throws all 30 pieces of silver at their feet? He never spent one. He never got any pleasure out of the thing that he sold the Lord out for. And that's the truth concerning uh, any person's life ultimately and our life as well. In chapter, verse 17, uh, Jesus goes on here and, and uh, they begin to prepare for Jesus' uh, final Passover with the disciples. On the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city and to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Wouldn't that be something? Of all the houses in Jerusalem, Jesus picks yours and you get the message, all right, honey, clean up the house. We're going to, you know, 
wow. And so the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the uh, Passover. And so here is the Feast of Passover. They're going to celebrate it, and uh, here it is. They're right on the eve of it, uh, Feast of Passover, celebrated in order to celebrate God's deliverance of the children of Israel from the bondage, the physical bondage of Egypt, and Jesus come into the world to die as the Passover lamb in order to provide us with a greater freedom, an infinitely greater freedom, not from the bondage of Egypt, but to free us from the very bondage of sin. And while they're enjoying the Passover meal, when evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. So all twelve of the apostles are there, including uh, Judas. Now, as they were eating, he said to them, Verily, verily, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, this hits them like a ton of bricks. There's only the twelve. And he lets them know, three and a half years, this history with one another and with the Lord, one of you is going to betray me. I mean, all you... You think about it. They were just going to go have a Passover meal. I mean, nobody's, nobody can think this can even happen, and, and, yet, and yet that Jesus would even have to say something like that. And their response is a very healthy one in verse 22. They were exceedingly sorrow over, sorrowful over the news that one of us is going to betray you. And each of them individually began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And this is a very beautiful mark of the disciples. Only one of them is in hypocrisy. That's Judas, as we'll see in a moment. But here they are. One of you is going to betray me. Lord, is it I? And there's this very, very healthy distrust of self. There was that consciousness that within them, I'm capable of doing that but I don't want to do that. Am I going to be the one that betrays you? And and so here is the the cry that they make out to him. And he answered and he said, he who dips his hand with me in the dish will betray me. And the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good if that man had not been born. And this he declares concerning Judas, the end of Judas, it would be good for him, better for him than if he had ever been born, than the consequences that he was was going to bear as a result of betraying Jesus. But the interesting thing about what he declares about Judas here is true of every single person in the world that rejects the Lord and ends up in eternal judgment, that it would be better to have never been born than to reject him and end up in that place. So we look at Judas and we put him in his own special category, and he is in that category in, in one sense. But this, what is declared here of Judas, is true of anyone who betrays or rejects Jesus and the opportunity that we're given, and that's called our lifetime. 
And then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And we know from the other Gospels that all of this wasn't going on and everybody's listening to one another's conversation. They had said, is it I? And all of this is going on. Judas catches Jesus privately here. Within that, others are talking to each other. He then says to Jesus, Rabbi, is it I? He knows it's him, but he's kind of wondering, does Jesus know that it's him? Is God on to him? And Jesus said to him, uh, you have uh, uh, said it. And as they were eating, uh, Jesus took the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And so Jesus now institutes what we know as communion or the Lord's Supper. Important to recognize that as the Passover celebration and feast is over, now he institutes the Lord's Supper communion, and he, he took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples. The other Gospels tell us that Judas is no longer in the room. He has gone off to do his dirty work, and communion is for uh, the Lord's Supper. And as he passed the bread to them, gave it to the disciples, he said concerning the bread, take eat, this is my body, and then, and certainly a symbol of his body. As we're told plainly that he gave them bread, and he declared that it was his body, but he's sitting there intact as a human being. It wasn't his actual body. It symbolized uh, his body that was going to be given for them and for us on the cross. He then took the cup, and he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, drink it uh, from it all of you, and this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And so, as the cup is passed and he explains what uh, the wine represents there, it represents his blood. And in the Scriptures, uh, the Bible talks about uh, the life of the flesh is in the blood. It represents his life. So, when you hear in a sermon or you are in a conversation with someone and they say, they talk about the blood of Jesus and so forth. It speaks about his life, his life being uh, given for us, his blood being shed. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. What Jesus was going to do was establish a new covenant, a new contract between God and man in terms uh, of salvation, and that salvation is based solely and completely upon His blood, upon His sacrifice upon the cross for us, His death, His burial, and His uh, resurrection. This covenant is not based on this relationship that we have with God, is not based upon Jesus' sacrifice and our good works, Jesus' sacrifice and us keeping the Ten Commandments or being a good person. The relationship that we have with God is based solely upon the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross for our sins. When Jesus was on the cross, one of the things that he cried out concerning our salvation is, it is finished. He didn't say, it is begun. And now he has supplied us with a salvation, and now we're to improve upon it in some way. This covenant, this relationship with God is a completely one-sided covenant in relationship with God in the sense that it is dependent solely upon His sacrifice for us. 
If our relationship with God was based upon Jesus' sacrifice and our doing anything, then our salvation would not be secure. I'd go to bed a, a nervous wreck every night. I'd wake up in the morning a nervous wreck every morning as a Christian. If something, if, if me ending up in heaven one day was dependent upon Jesus' sacrifice and me doing something, I know I would muff or blow that something. And it is only because this covenant is completely based upon what he's done for us that allows us to look at our salvation and say, it is sure, it is secure, it is something that I can be confident in. Well, somebody says, well, you know, I mean, you talk that kind of thing and talk about a salvation that's sure, a salvation that's secure based solely upon Jesus, then you're going to end up with a bunch of carnal Christians who are just going to go out and use grace as an opportunity to sin. That's not what the Holy Spirit leads any Christian into. So where does obedience come in for us as Christians who believe that Jesus has provided us with a complete and finished salvation? We obey him not to earn anything from him, not to earn our salvation. We obey him in response to the salvation that he has provided to us. And that's the highest motivation for obedience that a person can have, response to love response to something good that somebody else has done for me, and especially in a relationship with God, because all he ever has done for us is good, and all he did for us in Jesus' death was good. It is an unlimited motivation for obeying and living a Christ-like life. And so here is a new covenant, a new basis for a relationship with God based upon his blood and his sacrifice. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine. That's how he described the wine that was in the cup. From now on until the day that I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so as a part of communion, there is this looking forward to the day. And, and any time we partake of communion, there is a retrospect looking back in our past and seeing what God has done in our past, the forgiveness that he's given to us, faithfulness and so forth. It is a time of introspect looking at our lives and, and anything that is contrary to God's word, uh, repenting of that. But it also has a prospect element to it, a looking head of the fact and a reminder that this is not all there is for us as Christians. One day Jesus is going to partake of the fruit of the vine one day with us in the glory of heaven. That is our future, and that is a part of the meditation related to uh, the Lord's uh, Supper. Um, there is within Roman Catholicism, with, with uh, the Lord's Supper, there is this thing that, that they believe that is called transubstantiation. And they believe that uh, the bread and the wine become the literal body and the literal blood of Jesus in the partaking of communion. And I don't know when they came up with that, but it, it, it's contrary to the Scriptures. And I, unless somebody came up with that and taught 
people that, you would never look at the passage and say that, yes, this is G- that, that, that they are literally eating his body and they are literally drinking his blood, and that's what this thing is all about. Somebody has to kind of teach that to you in order for you to, uh, you know, come to that kind of a, of a conclusion. But it's a widespread idea within a, a part of professing Christianity, and it's good to realize, again, Jesus gives them bread. It's a symbol of his body. His body is still intact. When he gives them uh, the wine, he says, this is, my blood, this, this is my blood of the new covenant. But you notice in verse 29, after having done so, he describes it as the fruit of the vine. It never changed. For me personally, I don't understand why in the Middle Ages or whenever something like this would happen, I don't know why we have to make the symbols of his body and blood more than they are. The symbolism is enough in the hands of the Holy Spirit to make us appreciate what he's done for us. We don't need to believe that it's actual blood or actual uh, body. That's not what Jesus is teaching. Additionally, in the Old Testament, it was absolutely forbidden of a Jew or any God-fearer Uh, to drink blood. I mean, it's just forbidden in the law of Moses. So it's inconsistent with the passage and with the teaching of the Word um, in a lot of places. But when you run into it, just realize it doesn't have to be that for us to be in awe of the sacrifice that Jesus uh, made for His life given for us on the cross, His blood shed in order for us to have the relationship with God that we have. And following the Lord's Supper, they then sang a hymn and they went out uh, to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus informs them in this particular environment, he tells them, all of you, it's the 11 now, he said, all of you will be made to stumble. Uh, You're going to deny me. You're going to be made to stumble because of me. In other words, when I'm crucified and all of this comes down, you guys are going to stumble. You are going to deny me. You're going to, you will, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, and their denial of him was the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, and Jesus quotes it, I will strike the shepherd, speaking of Jesus' crucifixion, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered uh, as a result. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So he says, you're going to deny me. You're going to fail me. Uh, You're going to do less. You're not going to be the heroes that you think you're going to be on that particular scene. But I love how he follows it up very quickly in prophesying of their failure that there will be an afterwards to their failure. He will meet with them, uh, certainly in, you know, the upper room and so forth on the Sunday of his resurrection, but then ultimately up in the region of the Galilee. Peter listens to all of this, and of course, uh, Peter, this was just an affront to him. This is just an, an insult that Jesus would ever intimate in any way, let alone say it, that we will all deny you uh, or that I will deny you. And Jesus, uh, Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. That's just not going to happen. I don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. Put yourself in his place. I mean, we know a little bit about Peter, right? 
You're telling me, I mean, three and a half years, day in and day out, I love you, I care about you, and say in a moment, I will die for you. This cannot happen. What you're saying is impossible as it relates to me. It just is not going to happen. I will never be made to stumble. And he believed that with all of his heart. So he protests very strongly. And Jesus said to him, Verily, verily, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter, you will not only deny me, but you will utterly fail me tonight, and you will deny me not once, but you will deny me three times. Peter, it's inconceivable to him, inconceivable to him. And Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all of the disciples. They protested. This could not happen. They would not do it. And yet each and every one of them would uh, do it. They would deny him and fail in the, in the moment of, of that, uh, that great uh, test. It's interesting that, you know, when um, Peter makes this uh, boast that he, that he makes here, the protest that, that he makes here, Je- that despite his protest, he, his denial of Jesus, it, it does come to pass, as we'll read here soon, and, uh, and, it, and his denial is as epic as you know, Jesus ever said that it would. And so perhaps if you've been around the Bible for a while and been around church for a while and heard sermons related to Peter, he is a study on, on how to fall and how to deny the Lord. And, the, and it is a worthwhile study how it is that, you know, he follows Jesus from a distance and he warms himself and so forth at the fires of Jesus' enemies and the warnings that these things are to us. And it makes a very fine sermon. But he's well along the way to his fall before all of those things ever happen. The germ, the germ of his failure, the genesis of his failure occurs at this moment in his life, and it's his pride. It's his pride and his self-confidence. I will never deny you. That cannot happen. And, and he is the supreme expression of self-confidence. And he believed it. And one of the things that this passage teaches us is Peter thought he would be willing to die and rather than deny the Lord. And he denies Jesus ultimately three times, once in front of a little maidservant. And she's not even armed. No Uzi, no machete, no anything like that. She just confronts him. And all this idea that he has about his strength and about his confidence and about his commitment to God, it all goes up in smoke. And one of the things that it teaches us concerning the failure of Peter is it teaches us that there is no amount of determination, no amount of uh, self-commitment or anything like that that can allow us to live the Christian life that we're called to. The only thing that equips us to live the Christian life is to be born again by the Holy Spirit and then to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It cannot be lived in our own confidence. 
Now, Peter's pride is reflected in one other way in what he says here. He denies that he's capable of falling in this way. I don't know where you are in your relationship with the Lord, but I look at the Lord. I want to walk with him. I want to be faithful to him. I want to love him. I want to live for him. I want all of those things. But there's not much now at this point in my life that I look at and say, I'm incapable of doing that in and of my own strength. I'm going to get into heaven not on the basis of the grip that I have on God. I'm going to get into heaven on the basis of the grip that he has on me. The Bible says, beware when you think you stand, lest you fall. And that beautiful way of looking and saying, God, apart from you and my own strength, I could be unrecognizable in one day. With the temptations of this world, the hardship of this world, the warfare of this world, I depend upon you to keep me. And it's the Holy Spirit that we need to be able to live this life. Peter would receive that on the day of Pentecost, and we have a completely different man in the Bible as a result. But no amount of strength or determination or so forth is adequate for living this life. It takes the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord for the work of the Holy Spirit within our lives. But again, back to the second characteristic of of Peter here that's an indication of his pride in verse 33. He said, even if all are made to stumble. And now he's talking about the other disciples. And now he's being comparative. And he's saying to Jesus, and he's saying in front of them, and he's saying to himself, They may all deny you, but I'll never do it because I'm not like them. I'm more spiritual than them. I'm more determined than them. I'm more committed to them than them. I'm more on fire than them. And here he gets comparative, and it, it is a reflection of his pride. Behind all sin is pride. At its core, it's always pride. And here, Peter, his fall begins way back at this point in, in, his, uh, in his life, way before he ends up uh, in that place, in his self-confidence, and then also uh, in his comparativeness and in his pride. I'm too spiritual to do that. These numbskulls probably will do it, but I'm really dedicated to you. If you got any of that in your heart, I can't do that, or I'd be incapable of that, or I'm too spiritual to do that, or that could never happen to me. Again, take heed when we think we stand, lest we fall. That's a pride uh, that sets us up for a fall. Humility is a a much uh, more appropriate thing uh, to uh, clothe ourselves with. Well, we'll stop there tonight, and we'll get into verse 36. Lord willing, next Sunday as we head into, um, if all of this is holy ground, then the Garden of Gethsemane is holy ground among holy ground, and we'll look to, uh, to head into there with Jesus. And the lessons that are there that are so practical for our own life are so important, and um, we'll look to allow those to wash over our lives uh, next week. Well, you know, tonight as we're heading through this, all of this is so beautiful, and I and actually tonight got a, a little bit more exhortive than I had planned, but uh, que sera, sera. Uh, 
but I do, I do have within, within my heart, and, and if, it's, if, it, if it's something wrong with me, then you, you pray with me um, for, um, uh, for my heart to be changed. But I'm a Notre Dame fan, and so I'm going through it right now, even in, like, the recreational side of my life, you know. And I noticed that Coach Kelly, and I don't know if he's the problem or who's the problem with the team and all. I know it's no fun to be at Notre Dame tonight. No fun to be on that team or that coaching staff or that university, even on that level related to football. And he made the quote related to their loss to Duke yesterday. He said, every single position on this team, is, it is open. There is no, no one has a guaranteed place. And the article went on to speak about the fact that they've got all of this talent, but nobody has any fire on that team. Nobody is stepping up to be a great player among great players. And I think it's important for us as Christians, without being like making this a works-oriented Christianity or thinking, you know, leaving this place. My intention is not that anybody leaves this place and says, okay, I've got to be better. I've got to roll up my sleeves and I've got to huff and puff and blow my house down and so forth. That's not in my heart at all. But what is in my heart, and one of the reasons we're in the book of Acts on Sunday morning, is that the Christianity that's described in the Bible is the Christianity that we are experiencing and that we are living in the world today and not the cultural Christianity that is around us. And that we then begin to compare ourselves among ourselves and then pretty soon we look across the board and all and we say, where are the heroes? Where are people with fire in their bones? Where is Elisha who says to Elijah, think about the boldness of that. What do you want from God? I want twice what you have. And where does that come from? And how beautiful is it? And to just let it search our hearts tonight and tomorrow, if we've fallen asleep in our Christianity, and again I'll say it, if I can look back at my Christianity and say, there's been a time where I followed him more obediently, with greater zeal, with greater sacrifice, then I am in a backslidden state. That's just a fact out flat-out fact truth about my life. And if it's true then to snap out of that stupor and recommit my life to the Lord and go back to the Christian life that I know is true and that I would have never settled for less in, 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 back in those days. I watched Lord of the Rings uh, one time, and what an amazing series of of movies. Some of you probably think I'm Antichrist or something based on whatever you want and all. I see a lot of spiritual stuff in all of that. But there's that one scene in there that really impacted me as a leader and as a Christian. And it's the scene where that king, I think he was over like the earth armies or something. Okay. Now I sound goofy to myself, all right? 
So he's over the whatever. Some of you guys know this, and you're embarrassed for the fact that I don't know. But here's this king, and there's this warlock who's dressed in black, and the king has come under the spell of this particular uh, warlock and demonic influence. And somehow I forget a little bit about it and all, but somehow in that scene he comes out from the influence of that, comes out from the spiritual stupor that he was in, and his entire countenance changes, his entire, uh, everything about him changes, and he now becomes the leader that he is supposed to be. And it's so easy to fall into a stupor spiritually as Christians and the importance of breaking free from that and recognizing if it's true in our life and saying, this is the last day and the last night. I live this. I know better than this. I'm going back to full-on for the Lord and making that commitment tonight. Let's stand together and we'll pray, and we'll close. Father, a lot in this passage and a lot of powerful truths that are here and a lot of things that search our lives And I pray, Lord, whether it's this thing that we've just talked about or something else that speaks to us in our worship of you and what it means or pride or whatever it might be, that we wouldn't leave this room tonight and say that was a nice night and was another Bible study and so forth. But, Lord, if you have spoken to any of our hearts about something, help us now to treat your voice as something that is sacred and priceless and precious, and then to respond to it, Lord, in the way that you know we need to respond to you. Lord, I am concerned about the dumbing down of the whole world, but worse yet, the dumbing down of the body of Christ concerning what this is all about. And I confess my own capacity to fall in line with all of it, Lord. We need heroes, Lord. You, Jesus, you are the hero. But we need men and women to stand up and to look up to, Lord, and to see them radically operating in their gifting and in their calling and in their worship and in their commitment, Lord. And I need to see it in other people, and I want other people to see it in me, and I know These men and women feel the same way. Would you make us into those kind of Christians, not as a thing of works or, again, rolling our sleeves up and trying to work this out or to to do this or to do it in a self-righteous or a comparative way, but just because we love you, Lord, and we want to experience the fullness of Christianity, this side of glory. We know what it will be then, Lord, but we want it to be all it can be now. Freshly baptize us with your Holy Spirit. Give us a fresh zeal for you and the things of you, Lord. Make us prophets who will move the prophets, Lord. Make us something that is a strong and beautiful but humble influence, even within the body of Christ, for what Christianity 
is intended to be. You know what is in this prayer, Lord, and we trust you to answer it and to work it out in our lives beginning tonight and through this week and the rest of our pilgrimage. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.